It is a privilege and delight to be back with you all today. You have an outline in your bulletin, and I would encourage you to follow along. This is all I need to do, right? And this is my water? No one drank out of this? Okay. Okay. Uh, thank you. Before I get into the sermon, um, let me give you a brief update about what's going on in the Kearney plant. I think some of you have already gotten the news um, about our building in Kearney itself um, has been sold to the town of Kearney. The very town that we're trying to reach took our building away. Um, and frankly speaking, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit, if it wasn't for the unity of the church, if it wasn't for the word of God, I would be bitter. And I have dealt with bitterness over that. And so I imagine some of us have as well when disappointments come, right? When we think that um, it's going to go one way and it goes another, especially when you're in the middle of a fundraising campaign and you have thousands of postcards printed and donors lined up. And before you even have a chance to begin, you get an email that says 60 day notice. Um, I am so thankful to God for the way that the church in Kearney has processed all of this. Um, the Lord, the, the great miracle is not giving us a building. It's unity in Christ and the mission mindedness that we have. And when the announcement was made, we had no idea what would happen for June because we have to be out of 65 Oakwood Avenue by the end of May. But by the grace of God, we have a place to meet. Uh, he opened up a door 1.2 miles away, not in the limits of Kearney, not even in Hudson County, but across Route 7 in North Arlington, 153 Ridge Road, the home of the First Presbyterian Church. And if you look at how this happened, our brother Daniel Vale, who's been here to preach, uh, he used to rent from them on Sunday evenings. And then the Lord opened the door for him to receive a free building in Montclair. He moved to Montclair. Now, that, when that building in Montclair was available, you had several churches sort of clamoring for it. Who's going to get this building, right? And it didn't really suit our needs because it was, it was too small. Brother Vale got that building, asked me six, eight months ago, do you want to move to North Arlington, where I was? said, no, we have this church in Kearney. Why would we want to? And then the church in Kearney is no longer under our, um, we can't use it after another month. And so I called the people at the First Presbyterian Church. I met with them last Monday, and we agreed that starting first Sunday in June, we'll be meeting there um, Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights. All the details will be emailed to you so you can keep track of the times because some things will change. Um, we will be sharing that building with three other congregations. So it will be different for us, and we don't know how long-term it is, but I think based upon these last few weeks, months, even the last four years, we know that our church will go wherever God takes us. Amen. There are some church plants that have had 12, 13 locations before they settled on that one location. And it just so happens that we're in the book of Acts. And if there's one thing that I've learned in preaching the book of Acts, is how adaptable God's people have to be to wherever God takes them. So my vision might be one thing, God's vision is what matters. He's moving us to North Arlington for how long? I don't know. But you're all welcome to come visit us. The sanctuary is twice the size, and we love to fill it. So may God be glorified in that. If you have any questions about anything that's going on in Kearney, um, please let us know. Let me know. I'd be happy to answer that. We had a great meeting with uh, Pastor Johnny Dos Santos two weeks ago, or last week. Last week. Time goes by so fast. And... Um, he is um, getting to know the people, and we're sort of taking it slowly to see where this would lead. And Lord willing, 
Lord willing, at some point, he'll be joining me as a co-pastor of a new independent church. I want to thank you all for your prayers and your support. Um, four years went by really fast. And we don't know God's timing, but it could be within the next year or two. I don't want to put time frames on things because, like I said, we have to be adaptable. But it could be very soon that we are an independent church. And though we may uh, soon cut any sort of administrative ties we have with you, you will always be our sister church. And I hope that we can always help each other out, support one another, pray for one another, and do things like joint services. So thank you so much from the bottom of my heart and on behalf of everybody um, in Kearney. Please open your Bibles now to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. This afternoon, we will look at verses 18 to 28. uh, But I'm going to begin just by reading verses 25 and 26. Acts 18, verse 25, 26. The Bible says, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. You can see, verse 25, this man, Apollos, is a very fervent individual. He's on fire for the Lord. He is bold in speech. And in many ways, he's very accurate in his message um, concerning Jesus. But in verse 26, we learn that this fervent and accurate preacher had areas of his message that needed to be refined. And so he submitted himself humbly under the guidance of this husband and wife team, Priscilla and Aquila, that he might grow in his accuracy in the scriptures. The Lord is calling us as his people to be both fervent and bold on one hand, but also accurate and precise on the other. And these two things do not need to be pitted against one another. They are yours in Christ. And I hope that this passage today, this inspired text, would help us to learn the importance of both fervency and accuracy and give us the means by which we can grow in both of those areas. So let's ask God's blessing for that. Oh, Father, we pray that you would use your sacred text by the power of the Spirit, to open up our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things. We would learn where we fall short. We would learn where Christ has done it all for us. And by the Spirit of God, we would grow in righteousness. May our worship, may our way of life, may our obedience, Lord, be in conformity with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Fervor and accuracy. Throughout this message, I'll use various words to describe those two concepts. Zeal on one hand, knowledge on the other, fire, wisdom. The Bible's testimony talks about all or both of these things for anyone who desires to follow the Lord. We ought to be bold, but we also need to know what it is we're bold about. Mark 12.30 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
Romans 10 verse 2 says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Proverbs 19 2 says, Even zeal is not good without knowledge, and the one who acts hastily sins. Zeal, fervency, is not good if it is divorced from truth. And truth that carries with it no fervency, no boldness, is just deadness. Clearly, we need both. We need our heart to be engaged with the Lord, our souls to be engaged with the Lord, and our minds to be engaged with the Lord. Maybe you can relate to this growing up, or either as the child or the parent on the receiving end, but one of the biggest criticisms that teachers often give to parents on parent-teacher night is something like this. Well, Johnny's very smart, but he just doesn't apply himself. Oh, that hurts, right? You've got the intellect, you've got the knowledge, but there's no fervency, there's no boldness, there's no application. I'm not really up to date with basketball, but I do know there's a meme that has circulated the last few years online of LeBron James going like this. And I don't know if you know that meme. Maybe you're not that familiar with it either, but LeBron James was very upset. Why was he upset? Well, a couple years ago, the Cleveland Cavaliers, um, they were in the NBA Finals. There was 4.7 seconds left. Game one. One free throw would give the Cavaliers the lead, but the free throw was missed. George Hill missed the throw, and so the idea, of course, is you get the rebound and you try to make it in, right? J.R. Smith from the Cavaliers got the rebound, and he had room to shoot what could have been the game-winning shot, but for some reason, he took the ball and he dribbled the other way, and he let the clock run down, costing the team the game. That's why LeBron James was so upset. Now, why? This man was zealous enough to grab the ball. He had enough fervor to be the first one on the court to grab the ball after the rebound and dribble the ball. But what did he not have? He didn't have knowledge because he forgot the time. He forgot the score. And his fervency meant nothing if he didn't have accurate knowledge of what was actually happening. You see how we need both fervency and accuracy. How does that apply to us then as a church, a church that cares so much about biblical orthodoxy and fighting heresy and dotting every I and crossing every T, but yet we just sit on our hands. We don't evangelize. We don't help our community. We have no regard for growth, for missions, for church planting. Is that not a dead church even with all of its accurate knowledge? No wonder the, the label frozen chosen applies to some. But on the other hand, there are many people that have the zeal. They've got the, the, the boldness. But I want to tell you that some false teachers are very zealous and equally as dangerous. Knowledge can be good, but there is a knowledge that puffs up. Zeal can be good, but there's a zeal without knowledge. The book of Acts is a study in how, how the early church blossomed into the global phenomenon that it is today. And today we'll focus on these two characteristics as we look at the life of Apollos 
And this text, I hope, will demonstrate the value of fervor and accuracy, both individually and as a church, and I will highlight the means that God will use to grow us in both of these areas. We're going to begin back now in verse 18, as I kind of set the context in this message. 18, um, chapter 18, verse 18, and we'll read to verse 23, the conclusion of Paul's second journey. Verse 18 says, After this, <clears throat> Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sencrie he, had his cut, he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a little longer, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. This is simply the end of Paul's second missionary journey. I know there's a lot of um, journey here. There's a lot of names and things like that. But I want to just draw out a few things from this text before we get to Apollos, just so you understand the context. Paul met, by God's grace and sovereignty, a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. They were tent makers, just like Paul. And so when Paul came to their town, he lived with them and worked with them. That's not an accident, right? It's not an accident, like when I gave you the Carney report earlier, that there just happens to be a church building 1.2 miles from our church building, where a like-minded church used, and then they left, leaving space for us. It's not an accident when Paul came to Corinth, he met Aquila and Priscilla, who just happened to be new believers, just happened to be tent makers. God is sovereign over all these things. And Paul took with him Aquila and Priscilla on his journey, and then he leaves them at Ephesus. At this point, Ephesus doesn't have any pastors. So these are not pastors. This is not any proof, by the way, of women in leadership. But it is to say that under their watch, as the mature believers, they're sort of being a proxy for Paul when he leaves Ephesus. He's leaving the church at Ephesus in their hands. On the way there, we, we learn in verse 18 that Paul got a haircut. And this doesn't really have much to do with the sermon, but you might be wondering why. Because it says that Sencrie, he had his haircut, for he was under a vow. The answer is, I don't know. There are many commentators who, who give a lot of, of views to this. Uh, was Paul taking a Nazarite vow? Was this a vow of thanksgiving? We don't really know exactly. I do think it was likely a private vow, not a Nazarite vow, because God had rescued Paul from many dangers. And Paul likely took a vow for a period of time. And one of the symbols of that is to have his hair grow long. And now he's ready uh, to cut it. But it just shows it's not incidental, right? Luke, who's the author of Acts, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wants us to know about Paul's life because he wants us to remember that though Paul is going here and he's going there and he's going on the boat to this place and that place, that he still has a personal relationship with God. And the reason why he can do what he did is because of the overpowering power 
of the Holy Spirit. So whether it's a Nazarite vow or a personal vow, I don't think it matters. It's to show us that in the journey, no matter the hardships, it is so important for you and I to continue to commune with our Heavenly Father. So now in verse 19 to 21, Paul comes to Ephesus. The next few chapters in Acts will talk a lot about Ephesus. It's a commercial port city. And we learn that Paul did what he often does when he comes to town. He goes to the synagogue and he reasons with the Jews, showing them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. After that, Paul's second journey ends. At the end of his second journey, Paul has visited and planted churches in Antioch of Syria, cities in Cilicia, Derbe, Lystra, Troas, Neapolis, Philippi, Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, Caesarea, Jerusalem, and Antioch. You remember all those names? But here's the point. He did all of that without internet, without cars, without boats. All of those towns now is left behind with at least a group of believers. That's how powerful the gospel is. That's how powerful the Spirit of God is. God used Paul and his companions to do this. But now, the Holy Spirit, through Luke, is going to zoom in a little bit further into what's happening in Ephesus. We named a lot of towns, but we're going to zoom in here. And talk about while Aquila and Priscilla are kind of keeping watch in Ephesus, how they meet a man named Apollos. Again, remember God's sovereignty, as we've been trying to do in Carney for every single chapter in the book of Acts, because nothing is incidental. Apollos, as you already saw, is a man who needed some refining. It just so happened that Paul's protégés, Aquila and Priscilla, were there, they were there because they met Paul at the right time. None of this is by mistake. So Priscilla and Aquila strengthen Apollos. Apollos, we learn in verse 24 and 25, has an accurate understanding of Jesus. So he knows that Jesus is the Messiah. Apollos is a strong and fervent gospel preacher. But we learn that he lacks understanding about baptism. Now, there's a lot of ink that has been spilled on what exactly that means. There are some who question whether or not Apollos is a true believer. I think that he was. Daryl Bach, I think, says it very well when he says, quote, Apollos is a figure caught in transition who ministers in the diaspora and thus needs to be brought up to date. His preaching is not inaccurate, it's merely incomplete. So he didn't know all the benefits of salvation. You and I can talk about the fact that when you come to Christ, you become born again. You receive the Holy Spirit. You are empowered to live the Christian life. If you abide in Christ, you will bear fruit. These are things that you and I know from Sunday school, right? Apollos didn't know that. He knew Jesus was the Messiah, but he didn't know all of those things that come with believing in Jesus as the Messiah. He didn't know about the Holy Spirit. Oh, I'm sure he's heard of the Holy Spirit. He's read a little bit about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but he did not know what we know about who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer. He also 
was probably only acquainted with the baptism of John, John the Baptist, a baptism of repentance, but not one of entrance into the kingdom of God through the Holy Spirit. Not that, of course, baptism makes you a Christian, but baptism is the first rite that a Christian participates in to symbolize his unity with the body of Christ. I know I just said a lot in just a little bit of time, but these are things that you and I tend to take for granted. If you've been a Christian long enough, you've You've heard about this. You've attended baptism services. You've attended Sunday school classes, and you've heard sermons about the Holy Spirit, about baptism, and so on. Apollos does not have the privilege that you have. He didn't know those things. So whatever he did know, he preached boldly. Whatever he didn't know, he needed to be taught. Verse 24 and 25, zoom in again in Apollos, telling us that he was an educated eloquent and fervent man. It says in verse 24, a, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Apollos would go on to become a very important figure in the church. You don't have to turn there, but you might remember in 1 Corinthians, when Paul was rebuking the Corinthian church for the divisions within the church, right? He mentioned, some of you follow Paul. Some of you follow Cephas, Peter. And who is the third one? Some of you say, I'm of Apollos. So Apollos was such an important and influential figure that many people saw him in the same vein as Peter and Paul. But Paul goes on to say, in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 4 to 6, in 1 Corinthians, he says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, that's Paul speaking, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And then he goes on to say, So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Paul is trying to level the playing field to the Corinthian church. He's saying, don't look at us as celebrities because we are nothing more than ministers, tools through whom God gave you the gospel. But I want to point out that Apollos was seen as this very influential figure in the life of the church. Matter of fact, Apollos' name itself, which is short for Apollonius, means learned man. The Bible tells us he's well-versed in scriptures. He understands the way of God. He's described as fervent in spirit. Fervency means burning, boiling. He's an enthusiastic speaker. He could probably draw a crowd. He's excited about what he is preaching. He actually believes what he's saying. And these are all commendable aspects of Apollos' character. But, verse 26 tells us that Apollos also needed to be refined. As we learn just now in verse 25, he only knew the baptism of John. Verse 26 tells us, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside 
and explain to him the way of God more accurately. They explain more accurately. So he was accurate in many ways, but he needed more accuracy. Who among us could say that doesn't describe us? Has anyone here arrived at full, accurate understanding of the mysteries of the knowledge of God? You don't have to be here if that's you, by the way. You're, you're exempt from today if you already have that full knowledge. No, none of us do. And we will only, right now we see through a glass darkly, but one day, praise God, we will see face to face. In the meantime, we must be like Apollos, no matter how fervent, no matter how bold you might take yourself to be, you and I still need to grow and learn. I love Apollos' boldness, but perhaps the thing I admire more about him here is his humility. Because sometimes we get so caught up in our own fervency, we don't want to be told what to do. You can't teach me. You're not there with me in the synagogue preaching. Who are you to tell me? You don't get that impression at all, do you, from Apollos? Apollos only knew the baptism of John, which suggests he only understood the need for repentance and awaiting the arrival of the Messiah. Apollos knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but he didn't know much beyond that. He didn't know about the work of the Spirit, the importance of the Spirit coming down on the Gentiles. And so Aquila and Priscilla, who spent all this time with Paul, and so they learned things that Apollos didn't know, as Paul's representatives are now teaching Apollos what they learned. It's just like what Paul says to Timothy. What you've learned from me, commit to faithful men who will then teach others also. That's how the Christian message spreads. That's why we're here today in Wayne, New Jersey, talking about a crucified and resurrected carpenter from Nazareth. Because the Christian message was given to faithful people who gave it to faithful people who gave it to faithful people. And Aquila and Priscilla had that understanding that Paul had access to. So they, as representatives in Ephesus of Paul, were able to teach Apollos what he didn't know. They filled in for him what was missing. And thank God for brothers and sisters in our lives. And I hope some are coming to mind right now in your Christian life who have filled in for you what was missing. Perhaps they took him aside to not embarrass him. Perhaps they took him aside they didn't want to cause a scene. But I love their disposition in humbly taking this, this fervent and bold man aside, perhaps into their home and sitting him down, saying, Apollos, we admire your boldness, your teaching about Jesus, making many converts, but we need to teach you a few things that you don't know yet. And Apollos... Has no, there's no testimony of him fighting back, getting offended. You know, we're so easily offended today, right? Apollos didn't say that. What does it say in verse 27? And when he wished to cross Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So, so Apollos was validated. That Even though there's nothing between 26 and 27, we don't know what that conversation was. Verse 26 ends with, they explained it to him. Verse 27 says, they affirmed him. So to fill in the gap, it simply means Apollos listened. He listened. He received the correction. He received the instruction. And now he's being affirmed 
by Paul's representatives in Ephesus to go and preach the gospel. So where he was sort of preaching as a maverick, now he's preaching with the commission of the church. He's preaching under the authority of God's people. He now has accountability. He now has a structure. He now has people he can go to for help, which he perhaps did not have before. The the brothers in Ephesus even write to the disciples in Achaia, verse 27, they wrote to them to welcome him. So so that's a lot in the first century, just like today. There are many false teachers, many false teachers at the Christian bookstore, many false teachers on TBN, right? And we think, what's happened today, right? There were many false teachers in the first century. There were false Christs, there were false false, uh, magicians and and people trying to, to use the word of God for their own gain. So when you came to a church with a letter, you were validated. And Apollos is coming from Ephesus to Achaia with a letter to be welcomed. And why? Because he submitted himself to the loving and humble correction of Aquila and Priscilla. Fervency is great, but fervency without accountability is dangerous. And because... Apollos is now sort of leaving Ephesus, crossing to Achaia, figuratively and literally with the wind in his sails. God uses him in a mighty way. Verse 27 and 28 says, When he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. You, you, you see how the loving faithfulness of Aquila and Priscilla empowered this man even further? So much to the point that we get to Corinthians later on, and Paul is saying, don't make too much of this man. He has had a huge impact because of his personal testimony of fervency and also his humility in receiving instruction to grow. Brothers and sisters, I think we gain a lot from this text not only about the need for both fervency and accuracy, but how we get there. I I think we could all relate to one degree or another and say, I probably fall somewhere on the extremes of the spectrum. Maybe I value fervency to the neglect of accuracy, or I value accuracy to the neglect of fervency. Or maybe you might just say, I don't know where I stand. Some of that has to do with how God created us. Others have to do with just what we've learned over the years. But I hope you can see with me the importance of both. So the question is, how do we get there? How do we as Christians become fervent in the Lord and accurate in our understanding of his word? That we, like Apollos, would be used by God to preach the gospel and to strengthen the church. Well, you can see the application in your handout. We work together to strengthen one another. That's not rocket science. I don't have a 12-step program here for you. I don't have some latest fad. Here's how you grow in fervency. This book just came out. It's really great. Well, that might even seem ho-hum. We work together to strengthen one another. Okay, I've heard that before. I don't know if you actually really heard that. 
I'm convinced more than ever, God's typical program for strengthening His people is through the church as we minister to one another. Oh yes, God is the one who gets the glory. Your growth in fervency is the Holy Spirit. Your growth in accuracy is the Holy Spirit. But what are the means through which the Holy Spirit works? He works through His church. And those of us who don't value the church are going to be stunted in our growth. If we are like Apollos and fervent, but unlike Apollos and we reject correction, we will be stunted. And likewise, if we reject accuracy, we will be fervent and preaching a message that is not complete. It could lead people astray. Back in Kearney, we just finished an eight-week series on all the one-anothers of the Bible. I know Pastor Joe went through this years ago when he preached to Ephesians. And it's just so glaringly obvious that in the New Testament, if you as a Christian want to grow in any area of your faith, God has given you the tools of one another. That means that you and I have a responsibility to not only receive correction, encouragement, rebuke, admonishment, and instruction from each other, we also have a responsibility to teach and instruct and rebuke and admonish one another. And if we fail to do that, we are doing a disservice to the church of Jesus Christ. If you look back in the, in the entirety of the text today, verse 18 to 28, you, you might ask, well, what, what does the section of verse 18 to 23 have to do with verse 24 to 28? I came here from Kearney. I've done a, an exposition in Acts, so I'm going verse by verse. But when I come here, I have the freedom. I could, have, I could have cut out that first part and just went right to Apollos. So what's the connection between the end of Paul's second missionary journey and the story of Apollos in Ephesus. Well, I think you see some connection. And the connection is, from verse 18 to 28, you can see how much Luke, again, the human author of Acts, the Holy Spirit working through him, nothing being incidental, wants to tell us of the importance of being together. Verse 18 starts out by saying, and I'm going, to, I'm going to kind of skip some words here, so please try to follow. Verse 18 tells us after this, Paul stayed many days longer. You might be tempted to gloss over that, but why does Paul stay many days longer in any town? To do the one anothering work that it takes to strengthen the believers. Verse 20, they even asked him, verse 20, to stay longer, but he couldn't. So he had to decline, but he did say to them, verse 21, I will return to you if God wills. Look at verse 23. After spending some time there, what did he do there? The end of verse 23, strengthening all the disciples. And then you fast forward to verse 26. Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Verse 27, in Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to welcome him. And then finally, it says when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. The main source of growth for every single believer in all of the towns that are mentioned here is one another. We strengthen one another. You have a brother or sister that you've noticed needs help in fervency or accuracy. Consider that a God-given call to lovingly help that person to grow. And if you are that brother or sister, 
on the receiving end of what could be a very tough conversation. Somebody telling me that I'm not fervent enough or accurate enough. Be like Apollos. Humble yourself and listen to where you can grow. There are three things I want to say very quickly as we wrap up. Number one, individually, believe that fervor and accuracy are yours in Christ. That's where it begins. All the one anothering doesn't matter if you don't have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. But if you have the Spirit of God, and if by faith you are united to Christ, then you have access to what Colossians says are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So they are yours in Christ. But how does Christ dispense those things? Christ dispenses those things through his church. Now, of course, we could think of exceptions, right? The person who is bound due to health at home, the persecuted church who don't have the ability to meet like we do. But the normative expectation in the New Testament is that you and I would receive the benefits of Christ through our participation in the church. That as we commune with one another, instruct one another, teach one another, we would bring out all those things that are already ours in Christ Jesus, including fervency and accuracy. If you're united to Christ, you have access to all the wisdom and treasures of knowledge. And the Father promises wisdom, does he not? Does James not tell us that if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God? So it, it comes to us by God, but often through his people. Now before I go on to the next point, there should be a few disclaimers that are made here, right? Because before we go around saying, I've got to apply the message, so-and-so doesn't seem very fervent, I'm going to go tell them like it is. Just understand Fervency manifests differently for a lot of people. We're not the personality police. Fervency does not mean the volume of your voice. It doesn't mean whether you're someone who smiles a lot or not. There are some people that are very even-keeled, that don't show emotion. Do not assume that that means they're not fervent. Fervency will manifest in faithfulness. Fervency will manifest in being the first or among the first to serve when there's a need. Fervency will manifest in participation in body life. Don't assume someone's not fervent because they're not up to what you think a fervent person ought to be. Don't only look for emotion. Accuracy can also manifest differently. Not everyone needs to have a seminary level accurate understanding of all systematic theologies. They don't need to know Greek or Hebrew or that kind of thing. For some people that comes naturally. For some people they love that. But when someone is teaching the Bible, when someone is discipling someone else, and they fail to mention basic biblical principles and they are inaccurate, such a person is in need of correction. And I pray that all of us would be humble, no matter where we are. This goes for pastors and deacons and Sunday school teachers as well. None of us is immune to being corrected. We should all be appreciative of those who try. And I know that's hard. Our natural bent, my natural bent, is to be defensive. And one of the things that's helped me is to say, okay, if the person who's trying to correct me is 90% off, is there 10% that I can learn? I think Apollos teaches us to be humble. Which leads us to, number two, to be teachable. To strengthen weak areas. 
We must be like Apollos. We cannot say, I am so fervent, I don't need your help. No, we must be teachable. There are some of, uh, there are many of us who have a tendency in our zeal to have no humility because we're so zealous and proud of what God has done through us. And the same can be said for some wise people who know all the ins and outs of theology and biblical languages, but they don't want to take advice from someone who never went to seminary. I can tell you, as God is my witness, I have witnessed in the past several years at least one example of someone saying, I don't have to listen to you because you're not out there preaching on the streets like me. And I've also experienced someone saying, I don't have to listen to you because you don't know what I know from seminary. Both of these things have happened in the course of the last 10 years. Now, there are some of us who would never say those things, but we believe them in our hearts. The question is, are you and I teachable? Don't be defensive when people are trying to help. I understand that the Bible doesn't say in Acts chapter 18, verse 27, that Apollos was not defensive, but I am believing that's the case here because of what I see between how he received the teaching and how he was commended. So be teachable. Be willing to strengthen those weak areas. And finally, be willing to strengthen others. I think for some of us, this might be the harder part, right? I don't want to confront so-and-so. Sometimes you can do it as a team. Look at Aquila and Priscilla, right? As a team. Let's take Apollos alongside, take him home, maybe give him something to eat, sit down, commend him where he did well. There are ways to go about it. Before you want to go on a correct everyone's spree, it might be helpful to talk to your pastors first and just get some advice. I think some, some of the things in this message could be dangerous if they're applied the wrong way. But it's also dangerous to say nothing when someone is struggling. So be willing to strengthen others. It could be a text message, an email, a face-to-face meeting. It could be uh, so many ways to do this. I think of John Calvin and John Knox. You know, we, if you know anything about John Knox in the Reformation era, he was known for his zeal, as was John Calvin. And there's a quote from 1561 where John Calvin writes to John Knox and says, moderate your rigor. Tone it down a little bit. And you know Calvin wasn't trying to be some man-pleaser. Otherwise, he himself wouldn't have done what he did. But he recognized that there was maybe a little bit of a harshness that needed to be corrected. I'll leave you with one other story that's a little more recent between um, T.T. Shields and Martin Lloyd-Jones. Perhaps you've heard of these guys or or not. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think most of us have heard of. Uh, He died in 1981. He was a preacher in London. Can't accuse this man of being soft on anything. And there was another pastor named T.T. Shields of Toronto. And these two men had a correspondence that I think illustrates what we find in our text today. Um, T.T. Shields, the Canadian preacher, had a very effective and powerful ministry, very zealous gentleman. But Martin Lloyd-Jones felt that there were aspects of Shields' ministry that were sometimes too controversial, too denunciatory, and too censorious. In other words, he was being too harsh. And again, Lloyd-Jones is not some weak pastor. 
So Lloyd-Jones later recounts what happened. He, he, he decided something that is very hard for us to do, and that's to have a difficult conversation. I'm going to confront this guy and just kind of tell him to take the sharp edges off. So this is what he says. He says, Shields came to fetch me, and we had lunch. We talked on general subjects, then we went to sit in the garden. And there, as we drank coffee, he suddenly turned to me and said, Are you a great reader of Joseph Parker? Now, Joseph Parker was a 19th century English congregational minister who was known for his, his newsletters denouncing just about everybody. So Martin Lloyd-Jones says, no, I'm not. So Shields says, why? Why don't you read Joseph Parker? So Jones says, I don't get anything from him. Shields says, man, what's the matter with you? Well, says Jones, it's all very well to make these criticisms of the liberals, but he doesn't help me spiritually. So Shields says, surely you are helped by the way he makes mincemeat of the liberals. Jones says, no, I'm not. You can make mincemeat of the liberals and still be in trouble in your own soul. Well, Shields says, I read Joseph Parker every Sunday morning. He winds me up, puts me in the right. In defense of his attitude, he said, do you know every time I indulge in what you call one of these dog fights, the sales of the Gospel Witness, that was the magazine he published, go up. What do you make about that? Jones says, well, I always observe that if there's a dog fight, a crowd gathers. I'm not surprised. People like that sort of thing. So Shields brought up another argument. He said, now, you're a doctor, right? See, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a medical doctor before he became a preacher. You're a doctor, and if, if you're confronted by a patient who's got cancer, you know that if that cancer is not removed, it's going to kill the patient. You don't want to operate, but you have to do so because it's going to save the patient's life. That's my position. I don't want to be doing this kind of thing, but there is this cancer and it's got to be removed. What do you say about that? So Lloyd-Jones says, what I say to this, what I say to that is this. I am a physician, but there is such a thing as, quote, a surgical mentality or of becoming what is described, quote, knife happy. I agree. There are some cases where you have got to operate, but the danger of the surgeon is to operate immediately. He thinks in terms of operating. Never have an operation without having a second opinion from a physician. Jones goes on to say, then after we stopped arguing, I made one last appeal. I said, Dr. Shields, you used to be known as the Canadian Spurgeon, and you were. You were an outstanding man in intellect, in preaching gift, in every other respect. But over this university business in the early 20s, you suddenly changed and became negatory and denunciatory. And I feel it has ruined your ministry. Why don't you come back, drop all of this, preach the gospel to people positively, and win them? As they continued to drive in their car, Dr. Jones made his appeal. And then with tears in his eyes, T.T. Shields, then only 59 years old, confessed, I have never been spoken to like this in my life, and I am most grateful for you. Now, I don't know the ins and outs of where that story goes, but I want to focus on 
Martin Lloyd-Jones in that story. I'm sure it's uncomfortable for him, he was the younger person, to make that appeal to this man who is, by all, by all looks, he's a Christian, he's an older man, he knows the Lord, he knows the gospel. But Lloyd-Jones did the hard thing. He took this man aside and lovingly listened and lovingly explained so that he can grow in an area where he lacked. And I wonder if we are willing to do the same. You're not going to be willing to do the same in your own strength. You and I need exactly what Paul needed, what Aquila and Priscilla needed, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, and with the knowledge that this is the way that my brothers and sisters grow, I could surrender my fears, surrender my concerns, and go and talk to my brother or sister to strengthen him or her in either fervor or accuracy or both. Some of us struggle with fervor. Some of us struggle with accuracy. But if we have access to this supply from the Lord Jesus, and if God ordained it so that we strengthen one another, then we have everything we need to grow. Let us then not be so prideful that we can't be taught and not be so uncaring that we can't teach others. Let us strengthen one another that our church may be set on fire by the Holy Spirit and endowed with wisdom from on high. May we be a church that is fervent in preaching and prayer and love while preaching an accurate understanding of the message of the gospel to the glory of the one who died for our sins and rose again, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. At this time, we'll move into our prayer of confession. Brother Rob will lead us in that.